Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. Hey, Founder Fam, there's something really special I want to share with you today before we jump into today's episode. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following this podcast since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. And today marks the next step in that journey, which is Founder Plus. I started Founder a decade ago with a mission to provide young entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. And our goal was really to break down the barriers to entrepreneurial education. And I started this mission by creating a digital magazine with exclusive interviews with world-renowned founders. And that grew into a media network of podcasts, videos, social media, and so much more. So whether you lived in Melbourne, Mumbai, Manchester, or Miami, you could gain the frameworks that made Richard Branson, Mark Cuban, Ariana Huffington, and so many others successful. But what I found was interviews weren't enough. And that's why we started to create courses based on your needs as an entrepreneur, taught by a diverse selection of instructors that had proven success in their businesses, not just theory. And through this evolution, our community grew. Our courses started with Facebook groups where students collaborated, consoled, and really encouraged each other. And the results and stories from the founder community have been absolutely incredible. People like Renee Alice, who made $1.5 million on her Shopify store in her first year and a half, or Gamal Kodner, who went from zero to $60,000 a month selling beard oil, or Brandon Omorgi, who went from flipping burgers to $1 million in sales in a year from selling his digital products. But one course at a time, we found, isn't enough. You know, you guys have taught me the importance of continual education and connection. And our courses aren't just like dusty textbooks that get left on the shelf. They're an active foundation to move your business forward. So we know that you need more and we listened. So I'm really proud to announce Founder Plus, which is an all access pass to each of our courses and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined the Founder family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making Founder the world's best entrepreneurship community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we go into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come and check out Founder Plus by visiting founder.com forward slash membership. And even if you decide Founder Plus isn't right for you, while we are running this incredible launch for Founder Plus, we'd love to give you a free subscription to Founder Magazine just to say thank you. So I'm excited to see how we can continue to be part of your business journey. Thanks again, guys. 
Now let's enjoy this episode and I'll speak to you soon. This is episode number 415 with Phil Hutchin of The Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary Vee, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. In 2014, Phil created Dice. Dice has transformed how fans discover and buy tickets to live events all over the world. From ASAP Rocky to Bicep, Nick Cave to Adele, from the up and coming to today's world's biggest acts. And Phil's going to talk to us about how he's reshaped the entire music industry and how he scaled and built this incredible company Please welcome to the podcast, Phil Hutchin. The first question we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? It's funny because I think that now looking back, um, it seems very logical, but at the time it didn't make any sense whatsoever. And and if I gave it to people as advice, I'm not really sure uh, how how great it is because um, as a kid, I always loved computers. I was always like, you know, working, I paid the job, did the things, went to the shops, everything to like get money to like get more components of computers. Always played uh, video games, always strategy games or FIFA. Um, and then I was also obsessed with music. So buying like loads of music. And so those two things kind of came together around when I was like 17, 18, I used to throw uh, parties for Andre Dean's. And now looking back, not realizing um, what how nuts it was because it was like a thousand two thousand kids at these parties um and just been just taking it in sort of my stride to uh sort of do that and then going to university and being the uh, entertainment officer and uh, studying law because I, I thought that everyone who went to university that's what you did you did law um but i quit that after three years and just went into like filmmaking and everything else all these random subjects just so I could stay at university longer, so I can book more bands. Um, but as I was computers, came back to London. And, and then from that, um, uh, from product management, somehow I ended up with a, like a global financial services company in, back in Sydney and um, building up like a whole team uh, for pensions, which is as far away as we can get from what we're doing today, like helping um, employees you know, choose different funds for their, their pensions. And then doing that for a while, they said, cool, you've done a great job. Do you want to go to New York, do your MBA, do all these things? And it was like that moment, I was like, hang on a minute, what has happened to my life? How do I end up in this sort of um, uh, tech uh, uh, journey? Um, I love music. Because I was DJing on the weekends, just me and my friends at friends' parties uh, for like, you know, 10 hour sets. And so I said, actually, I thanks for the offer, but I actually quit. I'm going to go into the music industry, even though I didn't know anyone in the music industry. Um, and they were very gracious and said, okay, go do your thing. We'll pay you for a year and then come back after a year when you've 
basically failed. Uh, and I was like, great. So come in for some meetings. And so uh, um, through another club night in Sydney, um, met this guy who ran my favorite record label, uh, Modular Records. And I said, hey, why don't we team up? Because um, there was only like two or three of them at the time. Moved back to London. Um, we're very lucky that the first band that we signed um, did uh, super well. Uh, Interscope bought half the record label. And then suddenly just learned, you know, crash course into uh, the music industry and, did, you know, uh, Modular really um, blew up um, over those years. Didn't think about ticketing, didn't care about ticketing, didn't know anything about it. But as the acts got bigger, particularly in North America, um, became increasingly frustrated by the ticket price. Like we'd do a deal for an artist for like $50 a ticket or $40 a ticket, but it would go on sale for nearly double the price. And I was like, why is that? And everyone kept telling me that's just how it is. It's, you know, it's just, you know, that's, that's, you know, those are fees. And then we'd sell out and they'd sell for hundreds of dollars. And it was just like, this is crazy. Another thing I noticed was that we were putting a lot of time into, you know, creating an artist album um, and putting them on tour, but they, you have to keep on doing it over and over again. And seeing Spotify being building up as a platform um, was super fascinating to me because they were, um, you know, uh, being able to build up that brand. And again, kind of looking back, all those club nights with the record label, with everything else, they were all primitive versions of platforms. Um, they were all um, conduits to allow, you know, other people to kind of, you know, get accelerated or longer. And so I looked at ticketing. I looked at all the different um, solutions, trying to find one for ourselves. But I didn't feel like anyone was solving anything for fans. They were always kind of like just doing things for, um, uh, you know, for the, the venues or whatever else. It wasn't really kind of solving like the problems of, you know, the, the pricing, you know, secondary um, scalping, um, you know, discovery or anything else. So, so in the end, I was like, well, I guess I'm going to be doing this. And that was the start of uh, what became DICE. Yeah, interesting. So um, before we get into the DICE journey, because you've been doing that for almost 10 years now, massive platform, so many famous artists use your platform and you've raised, I think, well over $100 million. You've got some incredible advisors. Um, so uh, before we go into that, I'd just love to hear kind of more of the record label path and that journey. Uh, can you tell us kind of, you said that you sold half of that label to, to Interscope. How did that come about? And, and are you still in that, in that, is that still part of your business or? No, it's not. So that was, that was a while ago. And the, um, yeah, well, so the, the guy who owned it, Pav, um, you know, we, we, <laughs> I didn't know how to put out records and um, we were very, very small. I mean, I said it was in like four or five of us. I was running modular from, cause I just moved back to London. I didn't know anyone, didn't know anyone in the music industry. Um, trying to figure out like how do we get um, this record label famous um, and how do we get the artist to become uh, super well known uh, and because this artist um, was was blown up um, you know all the record labels were trying to sign them but we'd signed them and so the only way for them to um, uh, get them involved was to uh, get involved with the label but with the record label with, with modular i mean it's a, it's a big australian record label i mean it was something that you know there's a lot of australians in the in the london london market um and so the going back into throwing parties days i threw modular parties in london 
And that was a great way of sort of, you know, getting attention, building things up, connecting with people uh, in the industry. And they became, you know, pretty uh, legendary. And then we did them in New York and we did them in Paris and we did them in Los Angeles. And so, you know, building up the kind of that cultural uh, zeitgeist in each of the cities and there was just, um, you know, uh, uh, really fun. And, and, and as part of that, brought more attention um, to the artists. But yeah, I, I didn't know any of the rules. And so I'd be booking artists for the parties and I didn't know what a live agent was. Uh, didn't really know what a manager did. And I remember once the guy who ran Universal in London, he said, Phil, can you come to the um, A&R meetings? And I was like, what the hell is an A&R meeting? I was like, um, in my head, it was like a finance meeting. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm signing artists. I'm not going to be like uh, going to this. So I skipped all of them. Um, we had a tiny little office uh, in Denmark Street, which is, you know, just, you know, this legendary street where all the, you know, musical instruments were, uh, everything else. Um, just because we wanted to have our own uh, vibe around it. When we signed artists, I mean, there's a famous story when, um, with, with one artist where we kind of invited them to come to Croatia. I don't even know why, but they came and, uh, you know, we ended up signing them because of that. So always thinking differently because we were super naive in terms of like how to do things. Yeah, I see. So um, when did you sell, when, when, when did you sell, sell your label? Yeah, that would have been, I mean, it's like, um, you know, like 12, 12 years ago or something. So yeah, that's long gone, definitely in the, uh, universal um uh family yes and so in between uh modular and starting dice what were you doing what happened what like yeah so i saw a shift um you know doing the record label and putting out music and seeing the rise of spotify and the shift towards um artist management and so i created a, a new um company called deadly which was um managing artists um, you know, uh, putting on events, looking at, um, you know, the commercial uh, aspects and looking at more of like, because you think about it, um, you know, the artist is in charge of, you know, the creative and, um, and, and the manager's role is to help them, um, you know, uh, um, achieve, you know, their wildest dreams in, uh, for their, you know, with their creativity, but also take care of the business. Um, and that was what uh, Deadly did. Got you. And what happened with Deadly? Um, well, Dice just became bigger and bigger. So there was a period, I mean, you know, talk about bootstrapping was that, you know, put everything from, from Modular into Deadly and then put, put everything from Deadly into Dice. Um, and so uh, it, it was, um, you know, we just had to, um, you know, close Deadly down um, because Dice started becoming um, a full-time thing. Got you. So... You have this idea for dice. Um, you obviously, you know, with Deadly, you said you put a lot of money into it. Um, what were the first steps of bringing that to life? Initially, it was like because we didn't know anything about ticketing, and deliberately didn't hire anyone with any ticketing background for the first few years because we were like, well, "How do you think?" People tend to hate the ticketing companies. So, like, what if we created a brand that people actually loved? And thinking about the the emotional side of it. But before doing that, trying to figure out like how much do people actually care about the ticketing company? So the the period before Dice, we actually created a fake brand um, to see if people would buy tickets on it. So using the connections, I think it was Wolf Alice playing a small show in London, 
we sold it through this kind of fake website called tixie.com and we wanted to see if people would just buy tickets because everyone when you start in a company or anything else everyone tells you it's not going to work yeah it's like it's not going to work that's why are you doing this there's so much competition you know people are not going to do that so so it was kind of a way to prove out fairly quickly you know would would consumers fans uh, trust a, a new brand coming through and they did and then the second thing was um coming through uh, you know, with having a, a working version um, uh, ready before raising any money, because I hadn't raised any money before um, Dice, you know, because I was an employee, sold the company, um, had a company that um, we just, we, we, we wound down. Um, so Dice was the first time that I ever um, raised money. I see. So how long did it take for you to create that kind of, I guess, fake app um, and then realize that there was somewhat proof of concept to then go out and raising, would, would you say seed seed round? Yeah, it was our seed round, yeah. I'd say that was a good six months of um, you know, trying it out, seeing how the team worked. I mean, there was five or six of us in that initial team, uh, you know, really looking at the, the user experience looking at how do you optimize the journey? Uh, how do you make it as simple as possible? Think about all the, the main pain points because you, it wasn't, it's never good enough to just be like marginally better. Um, it's, not, it's no good having you know, better, slightly better UI, UX, if you don't have the inventory or anything else like you, you have to be like miles better. Um, and so, you know, digging back into, um, you know, pre uh, music industry days, um, just been very obsessive on, on the UX. Um, Really looking at those journeys, thinking about the the the, the fan journey from um, purchase to actually being at the venue, um, having someone at the venue who would let you in, uh, and and mostly just thinking about that that end to end fan journey. And so, we we you know refined that over the the six months, and then a month after launching Dice, so that's September. So it was eight years coming up in September. Um, a month afterwards, we scored a deal where we did all of the tickets for this event called Culture Clash, which was 12,000 tickets. And it was wild. I mean, it's kind of putting yourself into the most stressful situation where, again, going into like all in black, I don't gamble, but I think that's what people say, is the, um, uh, uh, let's just do it. Let's see how we go. And all of us being at the venue, you know, with the laptops, you know, scanning things, doing the things and just like, how are we, how are we going to do it? But that um, stressful moment just, you know, you know really um, rapidly gets your tech stack together. I see. So when it comes to f- features, how did you know in the early days, I'm sure you had a ton of ideas, what features to add, what to do next, what was, yeah, like how did you build out that roadmap? Well, the first thing was a uh, fundamental was removing the fee. Like, why is it when you buy a ticket, it's 10 bucks, and then at the end, it's like 12, 13, $14. And so the, it was like, you don't go into Amazon to buy a toaster and it's, you think it's $20 and at the end it tells you it's 30, like it's ridiculous. And so that, that was the first thing was, um, you know, the price you see at the beginning is what you saw at the end. Um, 
now at the beginning we said no booking fees that was the, that was the the call like not only was it super easy but it's like cool this is how much it is and and that really you know got people's uh, attention we just did it in london as well which is super competitive um the second thing was like having the ticket on the app now everyone was telling us no one's going to download an app to buy a ticket but i was thinking the opposite well there's so many benefits from downloading the app uh, for a ticket first of all you know you've eliminated 99 of your customer queries of like where's my ticket because it's on the phone i mean now it seems quite common sense but at the beginning yeah everyone was like no one's going to download the app and then the third thing was scalping. Um, you know, one of the things with Dice is that the ticket doesn't appear until right before the event. So there's nothing to sell. So you've just eliminated um, the secondary market. Again, being able to do that um, via an app. And I guess the last thing is that by being an app, uh, you know, bots, because bots, you know, are these things which are hoovering up tickets all the time, but they can't do it on, um, you know, via um, two-step authentication on a, on a mobile app. And so all these things were um, the critical things that we had to get right. Now, underneath all that was a million ideas, as you said. And to be honest, I mean, a lot of the ideas would, I was trying to uh, a lot of the, I was trying to solve the problems of you know one of my best friends uh, Ari, who's not in the music industry, works in IT, but was always the guy who bought five tickets to a show and then emailed everyone and said, "Hey, is anyone want to come here?" And then you have to distribute the tickets, you have to figure out how to get the money from people, or, or and 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 so um, I had Ari as my like uh, test case for everything. I'm curious as well, like how long did it take? for the industry to really get it because um, you guys really shook things up? That's a really good question. The, the, uh, so I thought that people would get it. Well, you, you got a split. You got half the industry just got it and it's like, finally, you know, you know, this is actually happening. And then you got the other 50% that we're still educating, like still with the, still today, like still with agents, still with managers. Do you realize that this is what's going on? And they're like, oh, no, I didn't really realize that. Now, Weirdly, the pandemic accelerated that education because um, during the pandemic, we actually went into live streaming, ticketed live streams. So artists were able to um, live stream, you know, through dice and sell tickets and do it themselves. And suddenly they had access to the enterprise software that they've got through dice. And suddenly they realized that when they um, post things on social, there's a huge impact in terms of ticket sales and they saw the pricing and everything else. And so the, um, it was still, uh, you know, um, doing a lot of education around, you know, uh, the importance of ticketing. I mean, it's the, it really is the um, the biggest source of revenue for for artists. So it's something that um, is is super important for them. Um, but yeah, in the in the initial year or two, you know, there was definitely more skeptics than um, uh, champions. Uh, but those champions were, you know, you know, helped us get through all of the tricky times. So you raised your seed round and then how long was it for you to raise your next round and really effectively get traction to be able to say, you know what, like now I can really put some firepower behind this. So I'm going to reverse the question if you don't mind, because like we just got our, you know, we did our series C in summer last year and, you know, that's, Seven years after we launched, we, we did our first like you know big uh, amount of uh, funding, and in the early days of of Dice, you know Deliveroo, which is a you know a food delivery uh, app, 
was you know launched you know just before us but you know roughly at the same time and they were getting so much funding like and then it was like a you know these other companies getting you know huge amounts of funding so we were getting small amounts but they were going cool go for it like grow like crazy and i remember talking to the you know those founders and them saying well it brings like a lot more um stress to it and a lot more expectations everything else in my head, I was thinking, oh, God, it must be great, though, to have those like stresses and, and everything else, like to be able to, you know, have that capital and like really go for it. Um, but now <laughs> I feel like the luckiest guy in the world, because the thing is that what happened was with, you know, raising uh, smaller amounts with the, the milestones, as you said, with, with the traction, staying in London uh, for, you know, for the first three and a half years, despite my every part of me was like, we've got to expand, we've got to expand. I'm really nailing product market fit. Now we know exactly how to allocate the the capital. I mean, and and you know our growth today, which is you know um, incredibly fast, is because of all those lessons that we um, we we learned uh, in the early days and all the things that we got wrong and with but with less um, uh, expectations uh, for it. So um, I would say that. Funding has always been tricky for us at each of the round. I mean, externally it might seem like, oh, look, they've always you know, raised money. But it's, you know, it's always trying, we've always been very careful about who were the investors and what they can bring to the table. And even in that first um, seed round, even though I hadn't raised any money before, instinctively I felt that we needed to find good people um, who could actually contribute to the business. And even though that's other people wanted to give us money, it was better to wait until you find somebody whose expertise can really help the business. So we were very, very lucky um, in that seed round. We had uh, Mustafa and Demis, who were the founders of DeepMind. So Mustafa joined our board and, you know, just having that data science element um, from day one really entrenched it into our DNA. Our first hire was a data scientist. And then as we grew, you know, into the Series A, it was run by Evolution, was the guy who you know, a cybersecurity firm. So we're looking at, you know, big data and also somebody who took a company to IPO. So learning about like, you know, how um, we can do that. With that B round, the lead was uh, Blease, who not only knew how to scale companies and, uh, you know, were based in the US, but also um, have a, a big social um, you know, element as in, you know, they, they, they're carried, they um, have a, fun, uh, um, a charity uh, called Epic Foundation, which I'm an ambassador of. And, and that was important as well, because again, it was like, you know, how do we give back um, to um, society as well? And then obviously with the last round with SoftBank, um, with somebody who really knows how to scale things up and I felt that we were ready um, uh, for that uh, last year and it's proved out. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success you should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder. 
hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. And when you get to like a Series C and, you know, you get the likes of SoftBank um, kind of knocking on your doors, are they knocking on your doors by that stage or it's more you're still building relationships, kind of going out there? Like, what does that look like? We're always raising, always, like always meeting, always getting to know people, understanding like what um, what they're like, you know, behind a screen and we raised during the pandemic, but I still made uh, the guys in SoftBank go for walks with me to really understand and, and go deep into you know what our business was, what they believed in, um, ask some questions about um, you know you know uh, things that went right and wrong uh, with them, how they contribute to um, uh, companies, and so yeah, we're always um, yeah always have to be open to finding. Um, uh, good investors and, and constantly meeting even outside of the funding uh, cycle. You know, a lot of, uh, you know, especially in the VC level, there's a lot of bad investors, like there's tons. And, you know, people who, you know, follow the herd, um, people who, um, you know, we get, you know, maybe insecure about their own roles. And so that insecurity like leads into your company and so the character is, is, is very uh, important uh, for this because, you know, this is, you know, and then for your audience, you're creating something from scratch, you're building it up, you're, um, you have an idea and, you know, by definition, it's incredibly high risk. So you need to have people around you that um, have proof of high conviction and, and also have high tolerance as well, but also can help you cheat, um, you know, so to speak, like, what did you go through, what I'm going through right now that you can identify um, pretty early? Yeah, I really resonate with that around the cheating part. That's kind of like what we try and do a founder and get people to share their experiences. So you talked about- taken investment at all? No, we haven't. We're still bootstrapped. Um, but Would you ever do it? Maybe, maybe, maybe. My, my mindset has changed around kind of what we're building and how we can go faster. Um, yeah, so I'm curious around bad investors, like, what do you look for? Like, what are the red flags? I have one trick <laughs> is that sometimes um, going into the, the meeting and seeing how much they know about this. Now, it's okay, like, if they haven't downloaded the app or did the things, but, you know, um, can I convince them to do it during the, the meeting? But also that... The best investors do typically, you know, look at the product, do their diligence beforehand. I mean, it only takes 30 minutes. Like, do they care enough about the company to at least spend 30 minutes to understand some things, look at some interviews, uh, uh, do everything else? I also um, try to balance that meeting into 50-50 uh, of, like, questions and answers. So it shouldn't be on that side of um, just constantly answering uh, questions. Also, you do your own diligence on this meeting as well. So it goes both ways. Like, you know, think about, um, uh, you know, what their experiences were. Like, for example, I met an investor who had a, an amazing reputation, was on the board of this great company. 
And so I asked them, I said, well, what, what decisions at the board level did you make that impacted this business? And, and they couldn't think of anything. And suddenly you can, it's, it's, it only requires one or two questions and you can kind of realize that actually they're kind of full of BS. Like it's, this is nothing sort of substantial here. Um, I think that the other thing too is talking to other founders, um, you know, how, what their experience is, you know, what is good and, and what's not. Uh, making sure you don't just speak to the ones that they recommend, but also the, perhaps the ones that um, uh, they kind of you know, run away from. Um, yeah, that's always, you know, uh, uh, super important, but I don't know, you just got to spend a bunch of time, um, with them in person, um, and, you know, get to know, you know, not just within the business, but also like, you know, their interests outside. What is their curiosity factor? What are they reading? Uh, do they read? Um, what do they listen to? Um, ask like, some topical questions, which are not related to the business, but more familiar in, in their world and how they respond to it. Um, I don't know, just things that you kind of start seeing in terms of pattern recognition uh, from that. Yeah, awesome. Um, thank you for sharing. Uh, one last question around the the raising capital VC piece, and then I'd love to move on more about kind of dice and the artists you work with and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you raised your Series C, $100 million. Some people would ask, like, where would you deploy that amount of capital over what period of time? Where are you spending that money? Like, where is it going? Yeah, I, I used to ask that question too. Uh, at the beginning of Dice, there was a taxi app in London, Halo. And they'd raise like $15 million. And I was like, but it's a taxi app. Like, what are they doing with that $15 million? Like, they've got like 50 engineers. I'm like, what are they doing with all those engineers? No, I think it's, you know, venture capital is a a rocket, yeah. Like, you could make it just, I mean, yourself without that capital, but it's... Um, accelerating you much faster. And that's one thing that you, you you go into that agreement, like knowing you know, what's at stake. So for us is that we're expanding you know, ge- geographically like crazy. Um, you know, we're now huge in, in the US, but we've still got a lot of the, the country to go to. We're going into Canada. We're in, already in, you know, in, in Europe. We're, we're launching again in, in Australia and in India. Like there's a, there's a lot. And so, you know, every country has a slight um, uh, difference, but overall, it's a you know, you know, we've got you know, 380 people at Dice, you know, just over 120 developers. Like the everyone is <laughs> insanely busy, like doing stuff all the time, um, because you're basically becoming the um, you know the commerce engine for for the for the industry. So there's a lot of complexity that that go to it. So let. Let me go back to that Halo example with a taxi. Well, it's not just that car is coming to you. It's all of the, you know, you've got to pay the drivers, do the, you know, the coordination with the app, the financial, you're making sure that every transaction goes through perfectly, you know, all those things that sort of lead around it. So, um, yeah, uh, for us, the, um, the Series C was the next stage of expansion and yeah, we'll, we'll be raising more money um, shortly um, uh, to continue that expansion as well. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Um, so from like Kanye West to Adele, you know, a lot of the biggest artists have used Dice uh, for their projects. Um, which artist was the big first unlock? Yeah, so I'm actually going to go back to the thing. Have you seen the Kanye West documentary on Netflix? Of course. I mean, you talk about any entrepreneur who wants to like see, you know, the struggles of like kind of making it that whole time of 
him at the beginning, you know, pitching to the the record labels, everything else, everyone ignoring him, everything else. Like those are the things that um, should fire you up as you're building um, the business. I was thinking like this when I was you know reflecting on those um, you know, <laughs> the, the, the potentially bad investors. Every time someone said no to Dyson, giving us money, it only burns up more fuel uh, inside. Of like, I really want to like, we've got to make, we're going to make it. Like, you know, you have to like really sort of get that. And there's a famous quote um, from Jeff Bezos. We were talking, we were joking about Scooter Braun bringing up that story. I've, I haven't met him, but I've heard the quote. Is that um, the reason that uh, startups win? Um, is that you only need one person to say yes to your idea, but in a an organization, you need one person to say no to shoot it down. Um, I think it's pretty cool. Um, but going back into the you know the, the Kanye documentary, you know that building those things up and then finding somebody who who believes in it and uh, and I think that when he did his um, parties with us in the in the US to to launch um, one of his albums, so he wasn't playing live. I mean, he was on the phone, you know, <laughs> like at uh, midnight, um, putting the final details, looking at the website, making sure that every like pixel was was great. That obsession to make sure that the end-to-end uh, fan experience, from you know, um, going on to the you know the pre-sale of the event, the sale of the event, the attendance of the event was as amazing as possible. But the first artist that um, you know really helped us um, prove. The point was disclosure, and uh, you know they—they're still massive, but they um, you know, did a show exclusive with Dice, completely sold out. The waiting list, which is our solution in terms of if you don't—if you miss out on ticket, join the wait list, worked like a dream. Um, and it was just like everything that we kind of was, you know, fingers crossed, is this going to work? Um, kind of came together. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I love disclosure. I've seen them a couple, at least once in Melbourne, maybe twice. Um, and I suppose now that I'm thinking about it, so you land a big deal like Disclosure. When, when, when was that? I was in the first year of launch. Okay, wow. Okay, but that's awesome because then you have those network effects taking place, right? Exactly, yeah. it's the And then for them, you know, they saw the benefits of the <clears throat> thinking. So you're talking about right at the beginning in terms of, you know, the, you know, the people who get it or don't get it. When an artist sees not just for the network effects of dice, but for themselves, like they they sold out the show, they got the waiting list. Next show goes on sale, sells out again, and the next one, and the next one, because dice can hit that audience up straight away. It's saying like this is you know coming up. If you missed out on tickets for the last one, here's the next one. But also that data as well, you know. Uh, live and data, <laughs> it's traditionally it has not sort of been. Uh, um, uh, used uh, sort of particularly well, but even down into an artist will sell out a show thinking that um, they can go bigger next time, but actually probably exhausted all the demand for the, the show and actually needed to space it out for a little bit longer, um, which is the opposite effect of, um, you know, of, the, of the waiting list. Like if you sell out your show and you've got a few fans on waiting list, you're probably not ready to take the next uh, leap up. Um, but if the waiting list is is crazy like it was with disclosure, they were able to keep on um, you know increasing it, looking at different markets and everything else. And then all those fans who wanted to see disclosure were they coming to Dice to look at uh, what the next things are. Mm. And then also you have like um, the discover feature, which I think is really clever and cool because it plugs into 
yeah, like Spotify, and yeah, you can kind of, it can tell you um, because it's it's hard. Like I think of myself, like there's so many artists that I love, but I don't follow when they're coming to Melbourne or wherever I'm going to be. And yeah, it's really yeah. Cool. So the discovery, it's that was a huge bet. You know, I mean, we thought it was going to be successful, um, but it took three and a half years to get a big enough data. We have enough data for us to actually give great recommendations. And for the first couple of years, I mean, the recommendations were horrible. Sorry, Greg, but they, they were very good. But they, um, uh, but they got kept on improving because it is, you know, um, self-learning and, and coming together. And about 80% of our recommendations come from our own data and find lookalikes uh, within DICE, obviously anonymously because we're very pro-privacy. And the other, and the, you know, scanning your Spotify or Apple Music is like a bit of a jump start to um, help us, you know, figure out like what um, the fans' taste is. But, you know, you're exactly right. Like it's hard to keep up with all of the artists that are visiting town. I lived in a bubble pre dice I thought that, okay, maybe there's 200 great shows a month in London. It's not, it's like 500 a week. It's crazy. Like there's so much going on all of the time. And so you need um, discovery because, you know, those creators of the past, like, you know, the enemy or, or, you know, publications, they've all kind of gone. And so it's filling that gap of being able to take your taste and give you recommendations and reduce that friction. So one of the things that we're always thinking about, you know, one was that purchase experience we talked about at the beginning in terms of making it super easy to buy a ticket and no scalping or anything else. The second stage was discovery, like um, how do we keep you informed of what's going on uh, in the city? And now over 40% of our sales come through the algorithms, uh, which is insane. And what's amazing is that that investment in uh, data from the beginning meant that when we launched in Paris, Barcelona, Milan, New York, all the other cities, they're the same, kind of just still works. Yeah, interesting. So um, you talked about data a lot. Um, one thing that I've been learning a lot, not so much from interviews with founders, and I don't think it's something that people talk enough about, um, maybe because it's a little bit taboo, I don't know, but like in the actual business, um, in the trenches, one thing I'm finding is companies that, that have an unfair advantage, they are harnessing data in deep ways, um, ethical ways, uh, but it gives them a massive competitive advantage. And, and it's kind of like an, another layer of business that you kind of, you talk about cheat codes and you there's levels to this stuff, right? Like, you know, um, there's a level now where I'm seeing that if you can harness your data and, and actually, you know, build a warehouse that, you know, far less sophisticated than, than what you guys have going on. But even at a basic level, you can do some really powerful things. Like as an example, if you, you know, sell your products on the phone or you have a call center, um, you can harness that data to predict the next best person to call, like all sorts of crazy things. Yeah. I mean, it's in, I actually think that the, I mean, one, I'm a big fan of GDPR. And two is that, I don't think that it's, I mean, it's been executed in the first way, but it hasn't been on to like the next way. Like I really wish there was a company that starts where it allows fans to have more control over the data and choosing, you know, how to give that to different organizations, but giving them uh, the choice to do it. I feel like, you know, with DICE, we you know, have a huge advantage in terms of um, the data that we have and being able to 
um, you know, like any marketplace, bring fans um, directly to events that they want to go to. Where we're moving to is, is opening up more of that, not on a kind of a fan user level, but like just in terms of a trend. So artists can um, learn more about, um, you know, which cities they should be going to, the pricing, everything else, giving them that intelligence to make better decisions. I actually would love, um, you know, and we'll lead this to be more open to make it um, healthier um, for artists to, you know, make better decisions and um, also like lead into other opportunities in terms of, you know, merchandise and, and everything else. Um, and then obviously, you know, we're very excited about um, Web3, but perhaps not the same as everyone else, but it's more like I see that as an opportunity to, you know, further uh, bring more transparency to the industry as well. Mm, so are you envisioning kind of the DICE platform going beyond ticketing and you guys are essentially kind of looking to become a Shopify for artists to, to really help with the commerce side? Yeah, less than because Shopify, I feel like is a B2B brand so it's like i'm not sure like if you don't go to the shopify site to like buy stuff but in terms of the enablement yeah um i use this <laughs> this example to try to get people's head in terms of like how big live is yeah so let's say that 90 percent of the world uh likes music half of them love it so much that they would pay a subscription to listen to it uh, each month uh, and about 30 percent of the planet like loves music so much that they're paid to go um see being performed live and we're capturing that 30%. These are the super fans. These are people who love this artist so much that they would pay money to go see them being performed live. And this is what gave us, you know, all the horrible stuff around the pandemic uh, on the human side. There's also like this amazing thing that we found from the pandemic was that fans want to give artists money directly. And so, you know, those people who bought the tickets, like, we can remove all the friction from merchandise. And we did lots of experiments last year and it'll come out to, um, after some of this year, um, is that being able to pre-purchase your merch, you know, not having to line up at the end of the concert to kind of pick it up, have it delivered to your house, all these things, but just making it simpler and simpler for artists to be able to do this on demand and, and everything else. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Um, well, look, I could talk to you all day about this stuff, Phil. I'm conscious of your time working towards wrapping up. Uh, we're going to move to the hot seat. I've got three questions okay. for you. If you could go back in time to your first day of business and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be and why? Yeah, we're talking about data a lot, but trust your gut. Like if you, good people generally introduce you to good people. So, you know, that's been something that's done instinctively, but like, you know, if someone is great, spend time with them, learn from them, listen and they'll introduce you to, you know, more great people. And it's, you know, that, you know, people generally want to help you, um, you know, particularly in former entrepreneurs, people have maybe taken a break and everything else. You know, one of the things I, I you know, saw, I've seen extensively and something I, you know, try to do as well is like pay it back, you know, like constantly, you know, I was always amazed at the beginning, like how I was getting all this time with these amazing people and they're giving me all this great advice. I'm like, what's in it for them? But now I know, like, now, now I get it. Like, cause I want to do the same. You want to really, you know, help um, somebody is starting out to, to do great things. When is work fulfilling? I know people say this, but I, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. When it doesn't feel like work is probably the, the, the answer. Like, 
it was started off as a joke, but then it's kind of come real where like on Fridays, it's like, I can't wait for Monday. And, um, and I, and I do really feel like, I think that, you know, um, we got a team in, you know, the, in Ibiza today going to DC 10. I mean, like the legendary club, which is, you know, uh, we do all the ticketing for DC 10. And there's a video of uh, our president there. And he's just, just smiling into the video going, I can't believe this is my job. <laughs> and I think that the, all of the things, like all of the hard work that you do, all of like the, um, you know, the pain, the stresses, everything else. And then you see it on the other side and you see, you know, fans really enjoying themselves. Like it's just, it's just awesome. It's the, it definitely feel very fulfilled when you see people go out and, you know, experience live entertainment. That's awesome. Last question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? So I think it's because it prompted from what I was saying before and just before I watched the documentary, but it has to be Kanye. You didn't, I mean, you didn't get to catch up with him? You didn't get sorry? to catch up with him when you when you caught up? Like, oh, sorry, when he, when he was using the platform? Yeah, but we're going out for dinner. I mean, if he's watching the Kanye, let's go for dinner. Like the... Um, Imagine that conversation would be amazing. I mean, from you talk, I mean, again, like the polymath sort of side of it, you know, from you know, music into culture into gaming into fashion into all these things. It's like, you know, one of the great things about music is that um, it does give you access to a, a lot of things. And if you think about all the things that make the world divided, music is definitely like one of, uh, of unity. Um, but also like how impactful it has been into so many different uh, industries. And, um, and it's great um, being the dumbest guy in the room um, learning about, you know, you know the future of, of, of crypto or like, um, or, or anything else. And you know, because they're also wanting to learn about music. So with Kanye, I feel like that's what he does. He just seeks people out um, for learning. So it'd be great to go for dinner with him and kind of like, you know, just, you know, get into his brain for a bit. Awesome. Well, look, Phil, uh, we'll wrap there. This is a great conversation, conscious of your time, but thank you so much and congratulations on all your success thus far. And you too. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic And I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.